Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Do you have a friend in the investing community? Schwab reminds me of sweet baby James. May he rest in peace. James Taylor. Schwab just came out and they're letting advisors know that you've got a friend and you can, they've got this little hotline where you can call their executives directly. They carved out a few executives. So the advisors that are disgruntled with this TD Schwab merger can call and vent and you've got a friend at Schwab to talk about it. Actually, uh, to be honest, on the admin side, it actually went fairly smoothly as big as that merger went. I know that Don had a few issues with the trading and whatnot, got most of those worked out, at least I hope. And But it, it, all in all, I think it's actually not as bad as I ad- actually anticipated. But anyway, I digress. Now, we've got a big show. We've got a lot of uh, I got a lot of stuff to cover, but I really want to dive into the markets because this has been such a tough market this last month. And so I know that everybody's, you know, look, we've got articles on the show notes, a little bit about planning and, you know, stuff like that. If you want to talk about that or look at any of that, you can certainly do that. And you can call me and ask any questions. But there are a few articles in the show notes that you really want is a YouTube video that Jeff Goonlock of Double Line Capital did. He's got some classic quotes in there. He's got three that are classic. I'll share those with you. Uh, Thank God MMT has left the building. I love that. And bonds are not a buy and hold right now. And we'll talk about that. But basically, he did an economic uh, 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 article on kind of the issues we're facing right now in the government spending. And he's looking at GDP. And he's saying, if you take out, I'm, I'm going to parap- give you the Cliff Notes version. If you take out government spending out of the GDP, we're negative. We're, we're in a recession. We're not, it's not the private sector. It's the government spending that is making the GDP positive. But, and that's probably true. But think about it, folks. Think about this while we're doing the show. If GDP is truly 5 or 6%, like they say it is, wouldn't earnings across the board, wouldn't earnings be very strong? Uh, look, three or f- 2 or 3% is decent growth in the economy. 4% is robust. 5 is rocking, right? So if you're rocking like they say they are, we are, it seems like earnings would be blown it out but it's come in as a mixed bag. Just a thought, just a thought. Anyway, you can watch that. You can look at that. You've got any questions, you can call me. 
But the one article I do want, and by the way, I got to give kudos. Nicole, she DM'd me on Twitter. She sent me a private message on Twitter. She's a very sharp lady. And she sent me both of these video YouTube short. Well, Goonlock's a little bit longer. But this other guy, this other guy is an expert on securities lending, uh, uh, the repo market, and the euro dollar. You know, the central banks, both especially the ECB and the Fed, are tied in with the euro dollar and the repo markets and security lending. And it, it, it really is just like when you think about it, I'm going to explain this. Don't think about it as like the fractional banking system. Okay. When, when you have two and, and, it, and, and, and so whenever I use the word collateral or security, like a bond collateral, think of it as dollars, like a bank dollars in the bank account. Right. But if there's too much leverage and there's a mismatch, you have a problem. You say, well, is that important? Well, maybe. Do you remember 2008? That little thing called the economic crisis where the market fell 50%? That was because of a mismatch. Asset, it's because of the forward contracts. But, but here is the, 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 the key takeaway. And again, it's on there. He explains it. It's very good. But when these hedge funds and these big institutions that are trying to make money, they want to borrow. They want to borrow money to leverage and go into margin and leverage to to, to increase their returns. And when money is real cheap, like a couple of years ago, when interest rates were real low, they would take uh, treasury bonds, a treasury bond portfolio, and they'd say, "Okay, because the government allows you, the SEC and the securities allow you to margin or borrow ninety percent on treasury bonds." or very good AAA quality stuff, but but with stocks, you can only do 50%. So a lot of times what they'll do is they'll go get some treasuries and then they'll borrow against those as collateral. Well, the brokerage firm, the investment banking firm says, yes, but we want you to pledge or, or, or tr transfer title to us and then we'll agree to repurchase it or repo. That's what a repo agreement is. We'll repurchase this either overnight or in a week or whenever it is. We'll buy it back. So it's really kind of yours, but but it, we're going to hold the title to it so that we can reloan it out to the next person. So just like when you take, say you $100,000, you go put it in the bank. The bank now, they have to have maybe five, it's lower than that, it's like four or 3%, but they got to keep a reserve requirement. So just call it 5% to make the math simple. They got to keep 5% on hand, $5,000. They can go lend out $95,000. This guy goes and borrows money and he goes and puts it in his bank. And now this second bank gets $95,000, which they can go lend out, say, 92 or 91,000. So it gets smaller and smaller, but that dollar is used over and over the same dollar. Well, so a bank may have a billion dollars in bank deposits, which are liabilities to them that they owe, but they may only have 30 or 40 or 50 million dollars on hand because not everybody's going to be able to need their money at once, right? But if a lot of people get scared and you start, they all start wanting their deposits back, that's where you can get a liquidity crisis where you can get a run on the bank. Well, here with these collateralized securities, it's not just the fact that they're doing treasuries. A lot of times they'll put in, in high yield or junk bonds. They'll put in other less than investment grade. They'll mix those in there and make a pool of investments, trying to put lipstick on the whole group to try to get a better credit quality, double A credit, so that they can borrow more. 
But here, so in an orderly market, and he talks about this, it's the velocity of money, the velocity of turnover. And the problem is when you printed this amount of money and keep this thing going, you got to keep growing because if it starts to shrink and contract, then you can have a deflationary cycle. They're terrified of that. So they want to keep the velocity, the turnover growing. So it, when they have this bond, this, this hedge fund takes this $100 million of treasury bonds, goes and borrows $90 million on it. Now the brokerage firm, this, this $100 million of treasuries is in their name. They go lend it out to somebody else and to somebody else. And so those same treasury bonds are borrowed three or four or five times. Then when some bank or some institution has a little bit of a hiccup or has a problem, and they can't deliver those bonds back overnight or to the other part, like they're supposed to, they borrow, they, they borrow them and they're supposed to deliver them back and they have trouble or they can't, or they get scared because someone downstream didn't give them their collateral back. All of a sudden fear starts, sets in human nature. And even though these banks and these investment banks and brokerage houses are supposed to give the uh, pledged security back, they're worried about them getting their own pledged security back in their coffers. And so they start hoarding, they, they stop delivering securities back. And all of a sudden the thing starts to freeze up and fear, and all of a sudden the whole thing grinds to a halt. And you have a liquidity crisis and it happens very, very quickly. That's what you got to watch for. I'm not saying it's happening now, but part of, but that fear could have been what participated this sell-off. It may not be uh, Ukraine. It may not be Israel. It might, but it might not. But how will you know that? Well, if you all of a sudden see the spreads between uh, in, junk bonds and treasuries, when that thing starts to spread and that starts to widen, that means the risk is high. When you start seeing, uh, well, even a few banker investment banks failures, because remember the rising rates have put pressure on some of these banks. The whole point is the system is a little bit more fragile than you think. And it's not just the banking, the banking system itself that's fractional. It's the entire securities business, especially the bonds, the way that they buy and sell bonds to keep all the money that's sloshing around in the free world moving back and forth. And so that's what's important. Now, every so when you go, not counting 2022, not counting last year, but the 10 recessions prior to that, when they looked at the yield curve, the yield curve uh, uh, pointed at, correctly predicted seven of 10 of the recessions, but it didn't catch three of them. Well, in all 10 of them, you had a liquidity crisis. Really, it's the liquidity crisis that probably precipitates the recession or it happens concurrently. Anyway, you need to look for signals of the system locking up, and that's when you're going to get a big, a big bear market, a big flush. In, in any event, that it's a it's a great uh, video to go watch. But I just wanted to to, to bring that up, and it, it's it's on the uh, website now. I do want to go to the mailbag, and then I want to go directly to Don at the team at Revere because this has been a tough market, and lately, the last week or two. The question about stocks have been drying up because people are scared. They're not worried about stocks. They're worried about how to cover up, which is probably the right move. And at least for now, it may change next week. But how to make yield or how to do something with that idle money. So right now, it's where's the best place for my safe money, not necessarily where's the best place for stocks. But remember, that too can be a contrarian indicator. When you look at 1979 and 1980, 
That's when everybody was saying, oh my God, you got to buy gold. You got to buy gold. Gold topped in 1981 and it didn't get back even until 2004. It was dead money during a deflationary cycle when inflation was finally killed. I'm, I'm bullish on gold right at the moment. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that at some point it's going to turn around and the time for gold and treasuries, short-term treasuries for income is over and you want to go into stocks. It's not going to feel right. When it's time to go in, it will not feel right. Okay? All right. Now, so I'm going to go to the mailbag real quick. And so uh, because the markets have a, a pullback, I told you we haven't got a lot of questions regarding stocks, but we did have a question regarding uh, where to put safe money. Hi, Dan. Hope you're doing well. Quick question. The Revere portfolio, I noticed about 50% of the portfolio currently in cash. That just occurred going down to 50. We already had some. I'll let Don go over that. Curious if the plan is to stay in the cash for longer. If so, does it make sense for the money to at least sit there in a money market fund closer to 5% than just the 0.5 it's earning today? He's talking about the core money market. Great question. I wish I had a definitive answer, but only the markets really know how much longer you'll will stay in cash. Uh, we moved it heavy in layers to cash because of the market turmoil and more aggressively these past few days. Uh, we are more defensive at times at risk, and uh, but the markets can have a quick washout or sell-off or even bear market very rapidly and then buying aggressively within a short period. Uh, so the markets go down much faster than they go up. Uh, the old adage on Wall Street is an escalator up and an uh, elevator down. Uh, now, now here's the here's the gold nugget. Here's what you need to know. Now, if we can, if the markets continue to weaken, we will purchase more T bills. We just bought 10% increased our exposure T bills 10% in the last few days, uh, making 5.4%. We will also invest in one of the Schwab money market treasury funds for the idle cash. That's paying around a little over five. Um, um, that, that we want to have the cash available quickly the same day so that we can buy stuff uh, and let the cash settle to review. Now, so this is last night when I'm answering them. So we're letting the cash settle and when we will revisit tomorrow, how much will go into treasuries, how much will go in the money market fund. Uh, but we want to stay flexible uh, because when the markets do reverse, it will be far more than 5% interest. Uh, but you were absolutely correct. Managing cash is important. We must, and we are monitoring closely. On a slightly related topic, good, I got this this morning. Good morning, Dan. I get a lot of ads that claim that central banks are quietly accumulating gold billion. Do you think it was true? I think I would if I were Jay Pyle. Um, best regards, J.H. Actually, since actually net since 2014, central banks have been adding some gold bullion and reducing their exposure in government bonds across the board, sovereign government bonds, including treasuries. Uh, uh, I would, uh, I would, I personally would like to know actually if we actually have the gold in Fort Knox to begin with or whether it's actually already been sold. Uh, um, you will read articles on that too. Uh, but I am bullish uh, long-term on gold due to the money printing that will inevitably take place. Um, have a great weekend. Uh, the point is that right now, it's all the questions are about cash, gold, or T-bills, and the safety trade, okay? Remember, in 1980, all the ads were about gold and inflation and commodities. So with that and that backdrop, I'm going to go to Don and Team Revere, and let's dive right into the markets and talk about what the markets have done this week and what, how we are positioned to go into next week. Don? 
All right, Dan, let's do it. One of the uh, key words that I took away from uh, your monologue that you just had in there was we want to remain flexible. And that is a, an extremely important point. Uh, we buy individual T-bills for clients and we usually have them staggered with a maturity of a week apart. We're up to 30% right now. And as you mentioned, we are looking for uh, the possibility of, not the possibility, we're going to put more into T-bill ETFs that can be quickly liquidated if we would need to get more in the market. But the flexibility uh, is the key to what you said. You also said, you know, you're getting 5% on this. If the market decides to rally, if we get a follow through day, you can get significantly more than that. Let's take a step back to late July when we uh, peaked after this nice rally through June and July. So since then, we've had a, a pretty orderly, it doesn't feel good, but it's a 10% correction off the lows. 10% is, you know, it, it's, it's pretty common in the markets. Uh, we're seeing the third leg down right now. The first leg, we dropped 5.9%, uh, 272 points. Then we rallied 4.8%. Second leg, we dropped 7.15%. Then we rallied 4.2%. Uh, now in this latest third leg down, and these are kind of symmetrical, at the bottom, 41.28 was the bottom, that's down 6%. Uh, the markets do adhere to symmetry quite a bit, and we're significantly oversold here on all the shorter time frames. And Connor's going to talk a little bit uh, about why this is uh, a significant area where the market may pause uh, on its uh, on its move down. So we don't want to pile too much money into uh, short-term T-bills and then have to sell them, wait for settlement, et cetera. We always want to stay flexible. Uh, we are typically uh, a, we, we tend to go to the long side as long as the market is above the 200-day moving average. We say that forever, and the market is, in fact, now below uh, the 200-day moving average by about 2%. But you don't just automatically punt everything when we break this 200 level. It's not a magic dividing line. It doesn't mean that if you break below it, you're automatically going to go down 20 or 30%. Uh, it has to be addressed in different layers using different technical indicators, uh, looking at how the market leadership is acting, looking at the macro factors that are going on, but ultimately prices is what's important. And with this symmetry on the decline and it being the third leg down, there is a pretty decent argument that we may at least pause here uh, and get a bounce. Um, corrections very often happen. Uh, in three legs. The uh, the bear market in 2022 was three legs, but it was three much longer, deeper legs. Uh, so right now we're 10% off, oversold short, or sorry, uh, yes, oversold short term at a reasonable spot that we might consider uh, a bounce. And we're down to uh, a 30% exposure to the S&P 500 and 2% into gold via GLD. We're also looking at some various commodity ETFs as, as well as the T-bills. Uh, but there are a few stocks that are holding up, but this really isn't the environment to be going heavy long unless you're doing 
doing it on a tactical basis with the understanding that uh, you would be selling if you get into uh, bounce up into resistance areas. One of the most difficult things to do in a market is to transition your thinking from what can I buy I need to be long to is that really what I should be doing or should I be looking to sell things into strength and looking for opportunities to get short either via names or in our case we primarily use inverse ETFs and the market, you know, long-term goes higher, but that long-term is made up of a bunch of short-term and intermediate terms where you can see significant pain. Our commitment to our clients is that we're gonna minimize that pain for them to the downside. Uh, and we're especially going to get more defensive if we break this 200-day moving average, which we have now. Uh, as bad as this looks and feels on the S&P, small caps actually undercut their lows from the bear market this week. Uh, so here's a weekly chart of small caps going all the way back here to 2022. We undercut very clear bearish action in small caps and we're at the bottom of the range though. At the bottom of the range, you typically see support. Does that support mean that we're going to have a bounce? Does that bounce mean that we should be buying or does that bounce mean we should be tactically buying and looking to exit if we run into these declining moving averages and start to go lower again. Only the market ultimately can make that decision. And really it makes that decision for us because we interpret what's going on. We don't predict, we react to what's going on. We don't anticipate that this should do this or this should do that. Uh, but small caps and mid caps have been extremely weak. They're near the lows of the bear market. NASDAQ, and the S&P 500, uh, Arden, um, just a normal correction, 12% down on the NASDAQ 100, still above the 200-day moving average. These were the big leaders during the June and July rally and also during the January rally, uh, kind of up with relative strength. Uh, we've had a mixed bag of earnings reports by the big seven stocks. We've seen Amazon rally nicely, Netflix, uh, rally nicely. That's not in the big seven, but it's in the big 10, which is the FANG plus index, which is the big seven plus snow, AMD and Netflix. Uh, but we've also seen some pretty nasty reactions to earnings also. Uh, for example, Google, then we saw some reactions that were positive like Microsoft and turned negative the next uh, day, going all the way down to re uh, to support. So it's very clearly a mixed bag. We're at a place where we may see a bounce. Is that bounce sellable or is it viable? And we'll use the same formula that we always use when answering the question is, is it viable? And that is we'll look at the bottom, we'll count four days forward, and we'll follow the O'Neill follow-through day methodology, which is time-tested, no rally in history has ever begun without a follow-through day. But just because you have a follow-through day doesn't mean the market's automatically going higher. You look for, after you have the follow-through day, do you have distribution within the first five days? We had a follow-through day here. Uh, and then on days four and five, we had uh, some distribution. The rally subsequently failed. Uh, we sold some things for some very small losses. We regroup and uh, figure out what our next move is going to be based on the overall market 
action, and that action right now has led us to only be 30% long the S&P, uh, looking to exit on bounces unless that bounce turns into a follow-through day. And that follow-through day also has to have some decent leading stocks that are breaking out of bases at the, at the appropriate time. Uh, so a, a lot of things to consider, but the bottom line is you, we always want to be defensive when we're below the 200-day moving average because underneath is where all bear markets occur. Right now, we've had the 10% pullback. That's normal when you get off of a high to where you break the 200-day moving average. I've done a study of the last 13 bear markets going back to 1970, and we're just completely in line with, with uh, those statistics. But it's what happens when you break below that 200-day moving average that dictates whether or not it's just a uh, barely a correction, which just at just over 10%, that's the technical definition of correction or whether you go to a 20% down move, which is a bear market, or whether you navigate into something substantially worse, uh, a severe bear market, which could be 30 plus percent and you need over 40% to recover from that. The market doesn't hand out 40% recoveries uh, like candy at Halloween. So defense first right now, we know how markets act when they're healthy. This was a very good, uh, example of markets acting healthy in q1 of 2019 uh, the guys are doing a study right now of what leading stocks broke out after we bottomed in the 2018 bear market that was a very uh, good example of how leading stocks and the indexes act let's go 2019 on the year uh, and you, you got a, a rough q4 2018 we had a great Q1 all the way up into April off the lows. And we're building a model of what this should look like to compare it to what subsequent follow through days look like to know if the strength is actually there. Because if it's not there in the leading names, uh, Jesse Livermore said, if you can't make money in the leading names, you're not gonna make money in the market. So we're always good at identifying the leaders, but those leaders have to make progress and the indexes have to hold up. So that's where we are right now, uh, defensive, uh, and looking for clues from the market for what should happen next. Possibility that this is uh, a good spot where we uh, should possibly see a bounce based on the symmetry of the three legs uh, in the pullback, but we're open to any outcome and we've got a plan for whatever the market throws at us. No, that's that. That's a great synopsis. I appreciate that. And And, and by the way, folks, so that's Kind of what I'm talking about, you know, Tim used to work for us and he used to say, you know, when the market completely breaks down, when Don's talking about a severe bear market or a bear market, those indicators and those lines of stuff, they're just lines on a chart. The, the market will break and it'll just swoosh down and those oscillating indicators don't work and you've got to be willing to move to cash quickly. So but right now we don't have any small cap. We don't have mid cap. We're not invested in the areas that are weak. We don't have anything overseas. The only equity ex exposure we have is S&P type stocks or, or maybe some large NAS. We don't own any large NASDAQ stocks now, but, but, but normally that's kind of the area. But right now, small cap, you shouldn't, there's no reason to own them right now. So if you've got a diversified pie chart, maybe you want to trim some of that pie and reallocate it, rebalance it, as they like to say. All right, Don, we'll go ahead and let's uh, talk to the guys. What do they got? Yeah, one one more thing. What I'm showing right here on a weekly chart is the uh, the bear market from 2022, and you can see very clearly the three three waves down uh, that occurred there. Uh, what happened at the bottom? 
ironically was a very bad piece of news. It was a terrible CPI report, but the market bottomed, bounced higher, uh, and we went into a decent rally off the lows, uh, leading us up to the three waves down on a much smaller basis uh, where we are uh, right now. But again, three waves, three waves, um, open to any outcome. And um, that's a good segue for uh, Connor to describe uh, some of the levels that we're watching as to and uh, give the evidence as to why this may be a reasonable spot for us to bounce on the S&P. So Connor, why don't you take it away? Yes. So thought today would be a perfect time to, you know, look at the S&P and Yesterday, we closed at two very important spots and key inflection points um, when analyzing through the anchored VWAPs and the volume profile. So, Don, if you want to pull up that first chart. Yep. So, volume profile, it's just another um, type of charting where you have the uh, volume on the right side of the chart, and it goes back into the year, and it will show you what what times in the year and what periods higher volume has been traded. And so once Don gets that up, yeah. So this is the volume profile for the SPY. Uh, you use the SPY because SPX doesn't show volume on here. So same thing, but so this is anchored year to date. So as you can see that purple line, that's the point of control. And that's where the most volume has been traded. And that makes sense because when you look left on the chart, that's when we're, um, that's, was it around that 4,200, 4,150 level where there was like three, four false breakouts and price spent um, a good amount of time in that area consolidating for the move higher. And on the other hand, that breakout um, during the year from, um, you know, May up until around August, that was low volume. So it also created something which, which is called a low volume node. And because price just kind of melted up in that um, time period, there wasn't a lot of volume. And you can see this recent correction that we've had in the S&P, the, the most recent lag was through that zone. And because there was such little volume, it kind of trickled down rather cleanly with um, really all bounces were very weak. Um, so now, yeah, yesterday we closed at the volume shelf. Um, this is a very important spot. There's a lot of volume, a lot of demand in this area. And although we are below the 200 day, it when you look at a bunch of different things, it would make sense for this spot to hold. Um, and that's just another layer to the analysis. Um, and like Don said, you know, sometimes with the 200 day, so many people have their eyes on it. And if you look back in history, there's been many times where price just kind of pings, goes up and down above and below. So this is when it can be useful to add other layers into your analysis. Um, this chart, Don's got IWM, and this just showing you how this played out. This is another year-to-date volume profile on the Russell. And like I explained previously, those low volume nodes where you see that gap, um, price just moves rather quickly through that zone. There's no volume support. And then um, this was a case where IWM came and tested the point of control and 
really no buyers showed up and it just trickled low, lower. Um, and that just really shows how weak IWM is. Um, and that's always a possibility. The point of control can be lost, but when you look back, it's the most reasonable spot that you would expect to show some demand. Um, and IWM undercut bear market lows today. It'll be important to see how that closes. Yeah, so next one, this is the anchored view ops. This is another layer of analysis, and this just shows another key inflection spot that we closed yesterday. Um, so I anchored these. When you use an anchored view ops, you want to anchor them from key inflection points. So two of the biggest inflection points are all-time highs and the October low. And it's sometimes rare that you see these both come together at the same level. And that's where we closed yesterday. The, the volume weighted average price from all-time highs was right there along with the October lows. So this is another um, reason to think that this is a logical level to think that price may hold, but we don't put our opinions. We just let the market tell us. Um, and then a different point of view, last chart is the Qs. Um, this one, I added another anchored view op just so you could see in, in action from a different angle. I also anchored one from the swing high. And as you can see, we had the first pullback. We came up, shortly traded above this. Once we got back below that swing high anchored view up, um, we kind of flushed down. And then most recently we rallied up into it and rejected and kind of like the symmetry of the third leg down. But the cues are a little different. They've been showing relative strength. They're still trading nicely above the all-time high and October low. Um, so you can look at it two ways. I mean, clearly cues are, are showing some relative strength, but at the same time, um, maybe they have more to drop and we're just gonna wait and see what the market tells us. But this is still firmly above. And if we get down there, these two levels are gonna be reference points to watch out. So um, yeah, it's uh, sometimes can be super interesting when you get confluence of multiple indicators lining up and um, all we can do is see how they play out moving forward. But um, two, two great tools to use and at the end of the day, they are price and volume. So um, really all that matters at the end of the day. So that's anchored view ops and volume profile. Good stuff, Connor. And, you know, all we do here at at Revere is review the weight of the evidence. That's a term that uh, legendary Stan Weinstein was very big on. And we're gathering pieces of the puzzle, trying to put them together to lead us to, uh, there are no absolutes in the market, but it's the weight of the evidence and the time-tested rules that we have that pointed us to not buying the dip, but getting more defensive as various levels are broken. We know the difference between a healthy market and a risky market. And right now, especially being under the 200-day moving average on the S&P, we're in risky market territory. Uh, another reason uh, to feel that we may see a bounce here is the NASDAQ had approached uh, on a weekly chart. Uh, it almost touched its 40-week moving average and is bouncing today on there after Amazon's earnings last week, but or last night. That would be Thursday night. Right now we're recording this at uh, near noon Eastern time on Friday. 
so that's another reason. Thanks, Connor. Next presentation is by Ted this week. What do you got for us, Ted? Yeah, so to piggyback off of your Stan Weinstein quote and the theme of this distribution dominant tape we currently find ourselves in, I just want to talk about post breakout action, what we don't want to see, and then what we want to see. And so in my process, I have like a mental checklist of various technical indicators or, or price action that I do want to see and I don't want to see post breakout action. And so if you were to pull up DOL, I just want to talk about violations first. So what we don't want to see after post breakout. And when we, when we talk about the weight of the evidence, we on balance look at stocks on our watch lists and in our universe lists and see how, how many violations or confirmations are piling up. And that can give us a really good indication of how healthy or unhealthy the market is. And so look, at, look here on DOL on the right side of the chart. We broke out on October 9th. And once we surpass the top of the base, the first thing on my mental checklist is that I wanna see follow through action. And in this example, we had the lack of follow through and we stalled. You see those top wicks that shows that sellers are coming in and buyers are not stepping up to the plate and pushing the stock higher. And so if we continue on looking rightward, we see higher volume back in relative to the breakout. Don, if you can point that out in the volume profile down there, we have that skyscraper of red. And so that is another thing I don't want to see. A third thing in my mental checklist is three or four lower lows. And as you can see, after we broke out, we immediately started making lower lows in price action day by day. Um, and then we also broke the 21 and 50. So that's another part of my mental checklist. And then throughout this entire action, we had more down days than up days and poor closes versus good closes. So those are six kind of mental checklists I go through on the violation side of things post breakout. And if I could definitely point out many more examples of price action that transpired in this last leg down. And when, as Don said, when the way of the evidence favors the violation side, we definitely want to get more defensive. And so Don, if you can break, if you can bring up TDW, I want to show the audience what action that we do want to see post breakout. And this was during that good period that Don mentioned on, on the S&P 500. The breakout was June 29th from that big base. And immediately you see follow through action and big volume coming in. And so the first thing I want to see is, are we getting more up days than down days? Are we getting more good closes than bad closes? And also when you see, we broke out the base, we pulled back, but however, unlike DOL, it was controlled. It was on contracting volume and it was supported by the fast EMA. And immediately we saw expansionary volume and demand come in to push the stocks in the new high. And that, that is precisely what we want to see a post breakout, a fast move up, a gradual healthy pullback into the faster EMAs, find support and move into new highs. And finally, something that I definitely want to look for and that indicates institutions are definitely accumulating the stock is an indicator that I learned from David Ryan. So if these metrics are present, it definitely shows that institutions are looking to buy a lot of the stock. And so that is 12 out of 15 days up. And Don, if you can point that out, I believe it's a few days. If you start counting from a few days before the breakout um, and you go for 15 days, you'll get 12 out of 15 days up, 20% plus 
um, gain in price. And also, if you look at the volume that Don marked, you clearly have expansion in volume. And on average, we want to see 20% plus. And so in conclusion, I just like when you have this mental checklist post breakout, and in my process is really important. I look at all the stocks on my watch list, stocks that I own and stocks that I'm screening through when I'm going through my universe list. I'm constantly looking at the right side of the chart and asking myself, how many violations am I seeing and how many confirmations? If confirmations far outweigh violations, it's probably a healthier market. I wanna be buying stocks. And then the opposite is also true. And, and one other important uh, note, William O'Neill always pointed out that you needed the M in market that's his M from the letter cancel him. You needed the market in your favor. Note that the TDW breakout that worked also happened in an uptrending market. Go back to DUOL, which was a leading stock, uh, but then note that the market topped while it was trying to break out. And especially this heavy selling here coincided with the uh, pullback to uh, increased pullback, increased weakness in the overall uh, indexes. And when DUL tried to break out here and then didn't show any follow-up strength, that also coincided with a weak time in the market. So breakouts in the market when the market is weak are a losing proposition. You really need to have the market tailwind uh, going for you. Thanks a lot, Ted. Appreciate it much. And uh, Michael's got an interesting presentation for us too. Mike, take it away. Hey, so can everybody hear me? Mike working? Yes, yep. sir. Okay. So um something interesting. If you if you go back to the start of the year and think about what the concerns were in the market and what analysts and they were talking about on CNBC and all over the place, it was it was inflation and the economy. What happened? Inflation looked as though it was cooling off. The economy was a lot stronger than expected. We had a massive rally in the first half. If you look at the concerns today, kind of rings a bell. It's the same stuff. It's inflation in the economy. So we're seeing a repeat of all the same concerns we saw at the start of the year. It's been that way for a while now. And what you need to think about is uh, why those are concerns and, and how that affects markets. So Markets are worried about inflation in the economy because it's trying to figure out where interest rates are going and how those interest rates are gonna affect the economy. And in previous videos, I've mentioned this, interest rates are the most important fundamental factor for any valuation. And there's a reason why the Fed has one tool, which is setting interest rates. That's all they need to do because that trickles down and affects absolutely everything in valuation in the economy. So the recent leg down in markets has coincided with a, with a huge and extremely rapid increase in long-term interest rates. And for a while there, the long end of the curve was significantly inverted, which meant that most participants believed that the inflation wouldn't be permanent, it wouldn't last for a long time, and eventually rates would come down. Now that you've seen this massive repricing of the long end of the curve, and a lot of people talking about higher for longer and rates are gonna stay high for forever. Well, now that's really starting to factor into valuation. So why are interest rates important? Why do they affect valuation? And 
the, the simplest explanation for that is that they're the hurdle rate of return. So if you're investing in anything, if you can get 5% risk-free, well, if you're taking risk in something else, you're going to demand a rate that's higher than 5% at least. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to take on more risk and get a lower return. So at the end of the day, present value or, or the, the current value of any asset is the future cash flows discounted at a certain required rate of return. And the same way you can do what's called the discounted cash flow, which is that you're discounting those future cash flows at a certain rate, you can do it on individual stocks. You're able to do that for the entire market because the market in aggregate, the S&P 500 has earnings, and then they distribute those earnings through either dividends or buybacks. So you can calculate how much they're returning, what the cash flows of the index are, and then set your discount rate and then calculate what the present value of, of those distributable cash flows are. So analyst price targets is what their discounted cash flow models are telling them fair value is. And there are a lot of assumptions that are involved in that, which is why every analyst has a different price target. So if you look, uh, yeah, across all investment banks, there's different analyst price targets. And a lot of those assumptions are based on were earnings headed? What's the proper discount rate to use? What's the, the probability or what, what, are, what is their ability to distribute these dividends? How much are they going to buy back? There, there, there's a lot of things you need to factor in there as well as something called the equity risk premium, which is something I can talk about in another video because it's a little more complicated than, than what I'm going to get into today. But at the end of the day, valuation is just as much an art as it is a science. And I think I have mentioned this analogy on the show before, but it's really good. And at the end of the day, it's sort of, uh, it's like a, a chef cooking. You can go to culinary arts school, you can do the proper training, but there's just as much art involved in, in being a good chef as there is those, those fundamental building blocks and abilities. So when you're coming up with valuation, it, it really takes a lot of practice. And there are people that are good at valuation, people that are bad at valuation. So, and what's important for the market and the reason why of the 200 day moving average and the technicals is because what the technicals show you is the collective wisdom of markets. So it, aggregate, it aggregates all the forecasts into one price. So if you take all the different assumptions, all the different estimates of price targets, where the market's headed, current thoughts, that's the current price you have today. And yeah, so in terms of a fair value estimate, uh, uh, someone who's really good at valuation, and I trust their opinion a lot, and you can see all of this online, he's a professor at NYU, and he's called the Dean of Valuation. He's on CNBC often. His name's Oswald Demoterin. And on his website, he has spreadsheets where you can see all of his inputs, how he calculates these, these fair value estimates for, for the S&P 500, but his target where he has the S&P fairly valued based on what's going on currently is 4,147. 4, and currently we are at, um, we're right around that level. So we're at 41.45. So in terms of his estimate and his valuation, which his assumptions could be wrong and they could change, we're at a pretty fair value. So with, with what Connor mentioned, that confluence of support of the anchored VWAPs, all of these things, there's a reason why all of these things tend to work together. And at the end of the day, it, it, it's just figuring out 
what that fair value is. And there's a reason why price and a lot of buyers come in at certain levels and then they're not as interested in other levels. So the technicals, if they match up with the fundamentals, that's where you've got really strong support. And right now, yeah, we've got those, those key technical levels and that fundamental level. So I suggest going ahead, taking a look at that website, understanding a little more about valuation and then playing with it and seeing what, what results you get and um, yeah, comparing it with the technicals. All right, thanks, Mike. That, so, but so the bottom line is this guy is is believes the market is f f fairly valued. Here's the issue, though, folks. It doesn't matter what he thinks. It doesn't matter what Mike thinks, what I think, or what Don thinks. It's what the market thinks. The market is going to determine the real value, and that's price, whether it's overvalued, undervalued. See, the market overshoots to the upside and the downside, and that's really what we're trying to measure. We're trying to measure the probabilities of it going higher, or lower, and the risk associated with each move. So right now is the risk higher. It's, uh, the probabilities uh, suggest it's going to go higher or lower. Now I'm going to put my Don Terpreter on and kind of regurgitate what I think Don said, but I'm going to let Don clean it up because I'll butcher it. So right now, we're, we've broken a, a few percent below the 200-day moving average, so we've got a heavy, heavy cash position, and our radar is up. But we're open to the idea that the market very well could bounce from here because we've got long-term support levels here going back, going back a while. And so, but if we do get some liquidity squeeze or we get some other uh, uh, f external factor that spooks the markets, you could get another flush down. So with that, Don, why don't you clean that up and clarify? Yeah, I mean, you can't clarify it because the market is going to clarify it for you. It's uh, clarify it would mean an interpret or a prediction. And, um, you know, again, weighing the evidence, we're in a uh, tough market. We're below the 200 day moving average, but uh, those are the negatives. On the positive, we're at a very strong support area for the market. It was one of the reasons why we're not completely in cash right now. Uh, we're defensive. Market could very well hold here. If something geopolitical or economic comes out, we could go substantially lower and we're prepared for that outcome too. It's also uh, likely based on, uh, Mike talked about the... Um, the, the valuation end of it, we talked about the technical end of it, and they're adding up right now to this being a spot uh, where we may expect a bounce. And I say may, there are no absolutes in the market. The quality of that bounce, is it a sellable bounce or is it something that leads into a follow through day is what is yet to be determined. And it's something that uh, we'll be keeping our eye out on, obviously. But at the very least, I would say this risk is very elevated. It's very high and we have a very heavy cash position. So if you're fully invested at this time, you're all in. We disagree with that. We think the risk does not warrant being fully invested at this time. We're just we're not a buy and hold shop. We're uh, active management. This is true active management. And uh, that's the way we do things. By the way, I forgot to mention. I am wearing this shirt for Baylor. I'm going to Baylor homecoming football game tomorrow afternoon, even though they're 
not very good. They're terrible. I'm going to support my daughter. It's supposed to rain and it's not a covered field. So hopefully we won't get washed out like we did last time. It was a lightning storm last time we had to delay the game. Anyway, folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send them to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there's a, a subscribe button. They can put in their name and email and phone number if they'd like. We're not going to reach out to them or hassle them. And it's up to them to reach out to us to ask for a complimentary portfolio review ask a stock they want to to to, to look at uh, or or just a topic they want discussed on the show and uh we won't and, and next to that there's a uh, contact us button if you want to send an email to me directly and and request something on the show or request something um, you can always email any of us directly at dan at revereasset.com don at revereasset.com michael ted or connor at revereasset.com. And you can always, always, always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Have a safe weekend. Go Rangers. And we'll talk to you next week on your money. Because it's not how much you made in the markets. It's how much of that you can keep. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.